I'm Kathy Joller. And I'm Dan Schifrin. And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between looks at what happens when ideas, traditions, and cultures collide. Today we're going to talk about celebrity and authenticity with our guest Kenneth Silverman. Kenneth is Professor Emeritus at New York University and the biographer of Cotton Mather, Edgar Allan Poe, John Cage, and Harry Houdini, which is why we're speaking with him today in conjunction with the exhibition Houdini Art and Magic, which is currently on view here at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. He's the winner of the Bancroft and Pulitzer Prizes for his writing. If you read Silverman's book Houdini, The Career of Eric Weiss, you will learn that Harry considered himself a magician and scholar. While Mr. Silverman happens to be a scholar and a magician, having performed as a teenager from birthday parties to the Borscht circuit to the small screen. So, welcome, Professor Silverman. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so, the exhibition that's currently on view, Houdini Art and Magic, came about because the curator noticed that contemporary artists were adopting Houdini as a subject and kind of recontextualizing him as a sort of performance artist and as a symbol. Um, so his importance uh, lies, you know, not just in his entertainment value at this point, but as someone who created a masterpiece out of himself. So were you at all surprised to learn about his current influence on contemporary art? No, I can't say that I was. I think since Houdini's death, there there have been a whole succession of books and films about him. I'm notoriously uh, the film with Tony Curtis, which uh, magicians intensely dislike, and I think Houdini Houdini experts do also. And many, many poets uh, since the time of his death have written about him. There are many books and lots of poems. Why do they dislike the film? Well, because he gives the wrong uh, reason for Houdini's death and uh, uh, shows mis- misrepresents a lot of his escapes. I see. Taking yeah. too many liberties with his symbolism yeah. oh, as a yeah, figure. Very much so. Um, a lot of people talk about Houdini as being kind of the, the father or the progenitor of um, celebrity or American celebrity. Um, do, do you agree with that? Is Houdini someone who you think was able to create himself anew uh, in an age of um, new American media, film, radio, and so forth? Is that something that he consciously set out to do? Well, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, Will Rogers, who was a friend of his, called him the greatest entertainer of his time. And uh, Houdini really made magic very, very public. You know, he did some of his straitjacket escapes in front outdoors, in front of crowds of 100,000 people. One he did when they were building the Third, third Avenue sub, the, the Third Avenue subway, I guess it was then. Did a straitjacket escape hanging over the big uh, excavation. Uh, certainly, he he got more press and more film and more photographs than I believe than anyone before him ever gotten. And he knew everybody. I mean, he was a friend of Sarah Bernhardt's and uh, Jack London's. You know, he was, he was very very popular. Houdini is a Jew something that a lot of people still, I think, are surprised to, to learn about. He was the son of a rabbi, and if I remember correctly, he was the founder, a founder, of the Rabbi's Sons Theatrical Benevolent Association um, with Vice President Al Jolson and Secretary Irving Berlin. Um, I'm curious what your reading is of him as a Jew or someone who connected to Jewish culture. Yes, it's, it's sort of complicated. Uh, to begin with, his father probably probably, I underline, was not a rabbi. People have done research in Budapest looking for his, uh, some kind of certificates of his rabbinate or something. Never has been found. Uh, Houdini at, at one time said his father was a locksmith and came from generations of locksmiths. When his father came here as a rabbi, called himself a rabbi, he had no success whatsoever. Uh, his congregation in Wisconsin let him go after four years. 
He went to Milwaukee to work as a rabbi, couldn't get any jobs. Came to New York finally with young Eric, ended up in a necktie cutting factory. So it's it's not really clear that uh, he was a, in some way an ordained rabbi, though Houdini sometimes said that he was and sometimes didn't say that he was. It's another strange irony. I mean, people came to this country, especially Jews, um, to escape certain aspects of Jewish culture or just the old country. So I would imagine huh, people came as rabbis and became locksmiths. I haven't heard of someone coming as a locksmith and becoming a rabbi. Well, Houdini's family kept up Jewish ways. I mean, he talks about his mother making uh, rugelach, and uh, he went out with his brother to kosher restaurants, goes with his mother looking for goose fat, and uh, his daughter, his uh, sister, was named Gitala. And uh, when uh, his father on his, his deathbed had, the, 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 the quote, rabbi, had asked him always to say Kaddish at the time of his death, wherever he was in the world, Houdini, October 5th, I think it was, found some synagogue to say Kaddish for his father. On the other hand, his wife, Beth, was Catholic. They held huge Christmas dinners for friends. And in fact, his, his wife's mother intensely disliked the marriage because he was Jewish. Is there something about kind of the rituals of magic and magicians that, um, I don't know, maybe owed something to, something having to do with Jewish practice? I know that uh, a lot of the magicians, the well-known magicians of the late 19th and early 20th century were Jewish. Is there any connection between Jewish ritual oh, and... There, for some reason, there seems to be. I mean, from beginning with whatever parting the Red Sea or whatever. And uh, Houdini was aware of that. I mean, in biblical times, the great records of, you know, Jews as magicians. And there is, in fact, an extraordinary history of Jews and magic. I mean, going back in modern times, going back at least to the middle of the 18th century, Jacob Philadelphia, I think his name was, he, he named himself after Benjamin Franklin. I've forgotten now his, his Jewish name, but there's then a whole line of, of very famous Jewish magicians, the great Lafayette and Horace Golden. I, I know their Jewish names. Uh, I mean, Goldini or whatever his name was, Horace Golden used to catch uh, a little goldfish at the end of a fishing rod up in the air and also was sort of the inventor of sewing a woman in half. There was Okito, a wonderful magician, whose name was Theodore Bamberg, and uh, the Bamberg family had been in magic for six generations, six generations of Jewish magicians, the Bambergs. Houdini was very, very aware of that. It continues. I mean, David Copperfield is, of course, Jewish and has often spoken about that, and it's it's strange. I don't know exactly how to account for it. Yeah, his Jewishness, I know, also came up um, in his later stage career when he was debunking spiritualism and, yeah. um, you know, attacked in the press, uh, you know, as this somehow his, not that spiritualism was particularly Christian, but somehow his debunking that attitude um, was something that distinctly Jewish. Well, Houdini's Jewishness was much attacked in the press. I mean, he got a lot of anti-Semitic feedback. In fact, his most famous uh, medium, then he investigated Marjorie, a great medium. Uh, her husband was a professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, and he cursed Houdini on that dirty little Jew, you know, going going after my wife. And Houdini, you know, he followed anti-Semitism all over the world and wrote about it. You know, he, wherever he played, and he played all over the world, he would write back to this uh, magazine, The Dramatic Mirror, talking about the anti-Semitic incidents that he ran into, certainly. And the amazing thing is that, that he performed actually in Russia 
Jews were in Moscow. Jews were not allowed into Moscow in Houdini's time, and no theatrical performances by Jews were allowed. And he somehow got in, not only got in, but he did an incredible escape there. He had the Russian police lock him in a police van, you know, stick him in a police van, all locked up and everything, and Harry got out, yeah. Yeah, he always does. Yeah, he does. Um, That story reminds me uh, a little bit of uh, Michael Chabon's book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, where there is a character who is Houdini-like and... um, that book is fascinating because the idea of escape is um, seen metaphorically as an escape out of one's mind, escape out of history, something like that. Do you think that Houdini had a sense of himself as someone who was escaping something more than just a physical box? I don't think so, really. In fact, Houdini's escapism and his um, and his spiritualism very, very closely related. Uh, he he liked very much a set of spiritualists at the end of the 19th century called the Davenport Brothers. And the Davenport Brothers were locked in a box. They were all tied up, locked in a cage, uh, their legs tied to the chairs, their arms tied to the chairs. And all around the this sort of box, the little room, were hung guitars and tambourines and bugles and so on. And they'd be locked in the box. All of a sudden, all the music would start to play, the tambourines and so on. And throw open the doors sitting there with their legs tied and their arms tied and so on, uh, what Houdini understood, and he was very influenced by the Davenport Brothers' way, uh, spiritualists were very good magicians. They all were. To do what they had to do, make uh, trumpets float in the air, you know, make tables move, all this kind of stuff, it was very good magic. Houdini was very aware of that. So you you would consider spiritualists as a group to be a kind of um, a subgroup within magicians? <laughs> no, it's a very important historical movement. I mean, beginning in the middle of the 19th century, it's attracted, you know, very important people. Abraham Lincoln's wife was a spiritualist and held seances in the White House. And there, there have been some, you know, extremely well-known spiritualists. Arthur Conan Doyle was, of course, a very, very convinced of spiritualism and went all around the world lecturing about it. And then there are others, too. Um could I unpack one phrase? Uh, when you were talking about Marjorie, yes. the medium, you said she was uh, an excellent medium. Oh, yeah. Um, could you say a little more about what you mean? Well, she would sit at a table with uh, four or five people, and uh, the table, they would be holding hands. The table would start rising, and uh, the, the, there was no possible way with almost people sitting it could rise uh, from her ear ectoplasm poured out, a big stream of ectoplasm. Her brother, who had died before her, uh, would talk at the seance of the voice uh, from the air. She was taken, I think, more seriously than any meeting was. Scientific American magazine put up a prize for anybody who could expose Marjorie. And in, in fact, uh, to make her prove that she was a medium, they locked her in a box. Uh, just her arms were out. It was like almost like a laundromat uh, kind of washing machine. Her arms were sticking out, but she was locked inside, and the same things happened. Bugle appeared up in the air, ectoplasm uh, pouring through her ear, and so on. Um, Houdini exposed her. How did he do it? Well, different things that he showed. I mean, table lifting itself is this sort of nothing to that. I mean, I can I can pretty much do that. Well, in the dark, what Marjorie did. She had a very, uh, I don't know what's the word, flexible neck, and she managed to get her head underneath the table and to to lift it 
I mean, they were holding her arms and everything. They were holding her legs, but she managed to get her head under the table and to lift it up like that. That was one of the things he exposed. Yeah. So her arms and legs were being held, but the table was floating. Um, I know this isn't the most important part of your story, but is ectoplasm the same thing as earwax? Uh, good for you. No, it's a spiritual, a spiritual substance. I mean, only dead spirits make ectoplasm. It's just occurring to me now, like when I picture a medium, and certainly I've seen pictures of Marjorie, uh, it's a woman. And when I picture a magician from that period, Houdini, man's man, muscular, <laughs> chained, and uh, was spiritualism kind of like a more acceptable female form of magic? Oh, there were great women magicians in the period. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? Lafayette. Oh, I'm getting... I'm, going on her first name. Isn't that awful? Madame Lafayette. She performed at the Metropolitan Opera House, uh, catching a bullet between her teeth. I mean, uh, somebody fired a gun at her and she caught the bullet between her teeth. She was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful wonderful magician. They're marvelous, you know, female magicians now, too. Absolutely. No question about it. I don't think that that existed, really. Yeah, no. I know. My perception is just of it as a somewhat of a boys' club and uh, certainly men are predominant, no doubt, but mm. if you go to Las Vegas today, there's some marvelous uh, female magicians mm. performing. So you have a, a history with magic. Yes. Um, yes, I well. learned that there's a wonderful picture of you on the, the back of um, okay. your yeah, book, Houdini. Yes. Um, yeah, of you uh, as a you know a young teenager yeah, performing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of how you... Um, came to, to yeah. become a performer, and uh, what part Houdini played in, in that? Uh, yes, I grew up across the street from where he lived. Wow. Yes. Uh, I didn't find that actually until later, but uh, I was born in Manhattan on East 75th Street. Luckily in New York, and we had a wonderful club called the Peter Pan Magic Club. It was for young people, and it met every Saturday, and we all learned a lot of magic with guest magicians. And I was there, I guess, from the time I was about 12 till I was till I got into college. And uh, I, I consider it the happiest time of my childhood. Really, had wonderful friends, you know, all the kid magicians, and we performed for each other and endlessly. It was very, very lovely. It was great fun. And uh, coming coming out of my house every day, I faced an apartment that he lived in. I, I didn't find that out till later, and then. Uh, then I found it out, and in, in his among his photographs too was a picture of uh, the apartment building. He's a circle of the apartment. He says, "Here, where I lived with my father." And I, oh my goodness! Yes, I saw that apartment every day. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. you realized that when you'd already started your magic practice. Uh, later, yeah, later. No, okay. not quite. Did yes. it have a sense of destiny about it? Uh, well, I was thrilled, you know. Yeah. And uh, at one time, I. I was working semi-professionally, finally, as a magician. I worked for a while with Shari Lewis, you know. Uh, oh, wow. with, uh, we worked together. We did shows together. And uh, she, would dan she was then a dancer, and she would do her dance, and I would do my magic act. I, I was then maybe 16, 17 years old. And uh, I, Shari asked me a little later when she got married to do my magic act at her wedding, <laughs> yeah. uh, which amazing. was nice. Yes, it was a wonderful time. Do you feel that there was a sense of destiny for you to write what I think is the biography of oh, Houdini? Thank you. I uh, my my subject as subjects as a biographer are all Americans. I mean, what interests me most is American culture. All of the people I've written about, Cotton Mather, Samuel F. B. Morris, John Cage, Houdini, are all people who are represented in my mind in some way American culture. And he was yes, he was a natural subject for me just because of my interest in magic, but. 
as an American subject, he was a natural subject for me, absolutely. And I, for many years, was very close to uh, the world's greatest Houdini collector, uh, Sidney Radner, who just died a few months ago, actually, at, at, in his early 90s. But I, I knew him. He showed me a lot of his fabulous Houdini collection. And yes, so I, I sort of stayed in touch with magic. I just didn't have the time to really practice anymore. I just couldn't do it. I'm curious that one of the dichotomies um, for Houdini is that between uh, someone who is this robust, masculine, physical performer on stage and who offstage was a collector, intellectual, someone who wrote about the history of magic. Uh, in what way do those two things come together in your mind? Well, it's to me one of the most fascinating things about Houdini. His labors, his exercise for his escapes was prodigious. I mean, in his uh, house he had a bathtub where he practiced staying underwater and sometimes filling the uh, bathtub with ice and seeing how far he could stay underwater in the ice water. When he was, I think, 14 years old, he was a prize-winning runner in uh, New York City. He joined an athletic club. He got to know many boxers. You know, they were a lot of his friends, uh, baseball managers. He's, he hung around with a lot of sporting people. But he said that from his father had instilled in him a love of learning. His father didn't have a big Hebrew library, sold it off when his things, his business started going bad for him in New York. But uh, Houdini was in, says he was inspired by that to read a lot. The, his favorite person to read about, and he said he read about him constantly, was Abraham Lincoln. And he accumulated a fantastic library. He thought he had the greatest, it's possible they didn't have the greatest drama library in the world, rivaled only by the Harvard uh, Drama Library and by the Folger Shakespeare Library. Uh, very, he had extraordinary, uh, valuable things. I think he had a Bible uh, autographed by Martin Luther, and uh, among other things. And uh, he wrote, he, he always carried a typewriter with him on his... Uh, uh, travels on his trips uh, to be able to write. He, of course, published several books and uh, less commendably, he published a whole bunch of short stories, some of which apparently were ghost-written. As, um, as a student scholar of American culture and history, uh, I'm curious how you might um, summarize Houdini's uh, achievements as an American or ways in which he might, during the years that he lived, um, have channeled the zeitgeist of American culture? Well, I think the important thing about Houdini as an, as an American was to free it, really free magic of European influence. You know, I mean, uh, Europe, European influence meant you came out in a big cloak and, uh, you know, whatever, a sorceress hat or something like that. Houdini came out on stage, he rolled up his sleeves, he walked in front of the footlights, talked to the audience like ordinary people, uh, uh, attracted crowds of 100,000 who came to see him free out in the street. He made movies. Uh, he he removed from magic and from escapes that element associated with European magic of, you know, kind of extraordinary something or other. Um, in my limited understanding of the history of magic, I, I see Houdini as um, this kind of third stage where you had a... Uh, magicians from, I don't know, time immemorial who passed themselves off as wizards or who pretended to be wizards. And then you have someone like Robert Houdin in the 19th century, um, after whom Houdini kind of took his name, Houdini, who um, showed up dressed the way people in the audience would dress. And then Houdini seemed to take that to the final level of looking like 
an American, acting like an American. Right. Well, yes, that's true. He took his name from Robert Houdin, who uh, supposedly was the first magician to don sort of ordinary evening clothes. Houdini being Houdini, he later smashed all of that and she tried to show that Houdin was not the first person to do it. He located a magician in Germany, whose name slips me in mind right now, but who he said did that before Robert Houdin did it, and he wrote about that. He went to try to visit, he went to visit the grave of this magician whose name slips in, in uh, Germany. So that, that's very Houdini, too, uh, somehow. Uh. Was the point of his doing that because he had some beef with Udan and he wanted to be more of an innovator than he was or he was striving to have the most accurate yes, historical record? Yes, I scholarship. I think he, he discovered that someone in Germany had done this before Robert Houdin and so he wanted that to be known. Yeah. I think it was part of his scholarly instinct, yeah. I'm the new media manager, so I asked on Twitter if anyone had some questions for you. Okay. Um, and one... Um, one person asked, um, have you ever attended a seance for Houdini? I've been to several seances, oh, yes. Some, some of them good and some of them not good. Well, a good seance means having a, a really serious medium. I mean, there are still practicing mediums who take it very, very seriously. I was to a seance in Niagara Falls once the, with a, a well-known medium. It was a very moving experience. I mean, she, I think, from everything I could tell, seriously believed in what she was doing. Unfortunately, sometimes you get some clowns up there who get around about the whole thing and, hey, aren't we having a good time? That's no good. But also I went to the big uh, medium colony in near Rochester, New York. Oh, my goodness, my head's not working. There's a huge uh, colony of mediums near Rochester, New York. Each medium has a cottage of his or her own with uh, the specialty, his or her specialty listed on the... Uh, it's terrible when you go in there because there are a lot of people with serious illnesses in the waiting room, you know, people on crutches and wheelchairs, one thing or another, trying to consult these mediums. But I, I believe there are I believe there are people who take it very seriously. Kenneth Silverman, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you.